0: in this episode of Boss Files.
1: It's a very insular culture. Ford was, the the entire auto industry was a very insular culture. And it really shocked me. And I decided to see if I could help change that. And in the early years, there was a lot of frustration.
0: The son of a Ford and a Firestone. Bill Ford has gasoline in his veins, he says. Today, he's the executive chairman of the Ford Motor Company. But his decision to work at his namesake company was one that didn't come easily. An avid environmentalist, he says he was anything but welcome by many at Ford in the 1970s. He was even told to, quote, stop hanging out with environmentalist wackos. Well, today he's pushing Ford toward the future.
1: Really, every piece of our business is changing. Uh, the ownership model is changing. The combustion model, the, the way uh, vehicles propelled is changing. The way vehicles are going to be financed will uh, change on whose balance sheet they sit, sit, will change. 3D printing is coming, and that will change manufacturing.
0: Why he's bullish on the future of Detroit and Ford's role in reviving the American icon. Plus, he weighs in on Ford's relationship with the Trump administration. And will he ever consider a run for office? Here's my conversation with Bill Ford. Bill Ford, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Poppy. It's nice to have you. So I suppose I have to begin with What was the first car you ever owned?
1: (laughs) The first car I ever owned was a uh, 1975 Mustang, uh, and I've had many, many Mustangs ever since. Funny story about this car, though. Um, So it was electric green. Wow. uh, Yeah, uh, metallic.
0: Understated.
1: Very understated. And so um, it was a show color. What I didn't realize, you can't take show colors into extreme temperatures. So I took it up to Northern Michigan skiing sure. o- over Christmas and went down below zero. I woke up one morning and the paint was literally standing straight up like this. Really? Strips. Yeah. Who knew? It was a shame. But it was a great car.
0: You, For people who don't know, obviously they know you grew up a Ford, the Ford family. But I don't think they know how much your life was all about cars and trucks from birth. Because you're the son of a Ford and a Firestone.
1: True. So, yeah, I guess I've got gasoline in my blood rather yeah. than uh, in my veins. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing, actually. Uh, and just to hear the stories of the early days of the founding of Firestone uh, and also Ford and the people that all came together. I mean, there were camping trips every year with Harvey Firestone, uh, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and whoever the president at the time was. And they would go every year to some place, and Edison would string portable lights that he invented for those camping trips. And um, my, you know, I used to hear stories about that and many, many more things growing up. It was pretty neat.
0: But then deciding to work at Ford was not a definite for you. I mean, you here you are, and I, I think many people probably don't know this about you, that you, from your early days in college before, were quite the environmentalists, still mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And for you, you felt this pull internally, this push-pull of, well, can I really be a true environmentalist and then go work for a car company?
1: Yeah, and could I really be passionate about working at Ford, and uh, and could I make a difference? You know, it's interesting, when I look back, I, I, I went to Ford uh, in 1979. The economy was, was going off a cliff. Yeah. The oil crisis was on. Um, and you know, and Ford was in trouble and I thought naively when I look back, gee, I should go to Ford because maybe, maybe I can help because everything I have in life is due to Ford. And then once I got there, I was just appalled at the, um, The mentality that existed throughout the company towards the environment and, frankly, towards anything outside of Detroit.
0: You were appalled at the company that held your family's name, that bore your family.
1: Yeah, it was a very insular uh, culture. Uh, Ford was, the entire auto industry was a very insular culture. Um, And it really shocked me. And I decided uh, to see if I could help change that. And in the early years, there was a lot of frustration.
0: Is it true that when you were there, you know, they they literally looked at you and saw you as a dangerous environmentalist, wacko, I think were some of the words, and stop associating with known or suspected environmentalists. I mean, really, this stuff happened?
1: Yeah, that's when I joined the board. I was given that exact phrase. Uh, And, you know, and I said, no, somebody has to build bridges between the two communities because right now all anybody's doing is lobbying uh, verbal bombs at each other and nothing is getting accomplished. So, um, but yeah, there was, a, there was a feeling that anybody who um, didn't subscribe to groupthink um, was somehow um, dangerous.
0: A college professor told you, don't go work at Ford because mm-hmm. you cannot be true to who you are. You can't be an environmentalist and work there. Did you almost take that advice?
1: I did. Uh, and I thought long and hard about it. And then I thought uh, once I was there, all right, I'll take this year by year. And every year I'm going to reevaluate You know, is this something I can live with and is something I'm proud of?
0: But it doesn't Uh, sound like the early years were that.
1: No, and I almost left, actually, a couple times to uh, pursue um, my environmental uh, passions. But I had friends from the environmental community say to me, look, if you can affect change internally, you can do so much more than you ever could outside. So if you can hang in there, do try to do it.
0: So when did it turn?
1: Well, you know, and it wasn't just on the environmental issue, it was on a lot of things, because that was, you know, when I say we were an insular company, we also weren't a very curious company, and um, and, and I think our industry wasn't very curious. There were a lot of interesting things going on in the world, but the auto industry um, rarely hired people from the outside. We grew our own. We lived in Michigan. Um, and, uh, and, and so, but I wasn't like that. I was intensely interested in what was going on in the rest of the world. Trends were happening in society. And again, I could see a disconnect. And I think, interestingly, uh, maybe an, uh, a good metaphor for that would have been the, uh, back when I joined the company, the uh, rapid rise in Japanese sales. Sure. And yet, if you Drove around Detroit. All you saw were American cars, and our executives thought, "Well, the world's just fine." How different
0: uh, today is! Wow. Of
1: course, and you know, and actually, most of my career, I have been pushing Ford, and you know, by some extension, the industry, to look much more broadly at society and trends, and to get on top of them early. Yeah.
0: We'll talk about that in your uh, what's now proved to be a very prescient. 2011 TED Talk that you Mm -hmm. gave about what's sort of beyond cars and trucks. But at one point, you went to the board uh, and and you said, we have to be about much more than these, you know, combustible engine, gas guzzling, you know, cars and trucks. We have to be about electrics. We have to be about the demise of car ownership. We have to be about alternative transportation. And they looked at you like wide-eyed, jaw on the floor. You're way beyond your skis here. Right.
1: Yeah. And that's fine. Um, you know, there there were many times in my career when I was pushing, when it wasn't obvious that I was pushing in the right direction. When I look back, almost every time it was the right direction. And so um, and my only regret is sometimes I didn't push harder and faster. You know, and I, I think, um, I, and again, it gets back to that culture of insularity that, that seemed to permeate our entire industry.
0: Fast forward to now, and you have said that you know, for a large chunk of your career, it's been about worrying about how are we going to sell more cars and mm-hmm. trucks? OK, now you worry. What if all we do is sell cars and trucks?
1: Yeah. So that's right. I, I, you mentioned a minute ago I gave a TED talk in 2011 where I talked about the future of our industry being very different from the present. And, um, and I mentioned the fact that uh, people were just looking at rising GDPs around the world. Yeah. They were looking at growing middle classes around the world. And in our industry, they're extrapolating out enormous car sales. And I simply said, time out. That makes no sense. Already, we have gridlock in so much of the world. If you think we're going to go from a billion vehicles on the planet today to 4 billion by 2050, uh-huh. you're crazy. Um, and already, I could see even in two thousand and eleven, cities around the world were starting to grapple with what do we do about traffic.
0: But does that mean that the future of Ford will not be cars and trucks? No,
1: of course it will. We, we'll make cars and trucks, but they'll be different. They'll be connected. We may not. We may not uh, make the same number as we did, but we will.
0: You'll make less.
1: We don't know. Uh, we could, depending on on you know on traffic and flows. But uh, with the important thing, though, is. These cars will be connected to all the other cars around. They'll be connected to the infrastructure around them. They'll enable free-flowing movement. If you think of autonomous vehicles, they, they could be up and running 16 hours a day, not parked in a parking garage, just doing nothing like so many cars are today. Also, the revenue possibilities on uh, all these vehicles will be much different than what we well, see it's today. It's actually
0: a lot higher. And and it I is. wonder if you agree with the last year. uh General Motors executive, mm-hmm. I know you saw this, said there's much more money to be made per car selling rides, essentially, than, than selling cars. And their estimate, they talked about GM making about $30,000 over the lifetime of a vehicle it sells. And this was Dan Amon, uh Don Eamon And he said right. that but selling, you know, that balloons to hundreds of thousands of dollars per car if you're selling rides.
1: Yeah. And rides isn't just people. It's also goods and delivery. So that's right. I mean, if, if you aggregate it all and just call it rides, that that's right. I think most people f- right now are focused on the Uber and the Lyft and the people moving. And that's certainly an important part of it. But there's a whole other piece of this, which is delivery um, and particularly last mile delivery in cities. And sure. so, yeah, I, I think I, I agree with him completely that the revenue possibility um, and also, if you think of it, it we become a lot less cyclical. Uh, we become, you know, less capital intensive. Our whole bus- business model really changes.
0: But you know, Wall Street cares about you selling more cars and trucks today, of course they right are. now, quarterly. Right. So, how do you do that, <laughs> and then do what you no, just told right. me about, and continue to meet or beat shareholder expectations? I mean, that's been that. I mean, that is the core struggle and that's your job. Of course. To figure out.
1: Yeah, of course it is. And it, and it's at one time the hardest management job, I think, in the last, since the founding of Ford Motor Company and also the most interesting because um, you're right. You have to look at today. You've got to sell great cars and trucks today with high quality that people love. Then you have to plan for the far future and then you have to plan the transition. How do you get from here to there? In addition to all that, you have to also plan the business models around the future. It's not just the technology and the hardware, uh, but it's also what businesses are you going to build around it. So, yeah, it's it's really um, putting a lot on our management team. But on the other hand, it's an amazing opportunity. I mean, I think it's the most interesting time that I've seen in my, my lifetime.
0: Who or what changed it in your mind? Meaning, was it Uber, for example? No. Was, was there a defining moment or a wake-up call for you?
1: Yes, So I was on the board of eBay for 11 years, and I was going out to the valley all the time, and I could see um, all the startup activity. And it really occurred to me, probably around 2007, uh, that, wow, our industry, every other industry is getting disrupted. Why would ours be any different? What will it look like? I'm not sure. So in 2009, I formed my own venture capital fund to invest just in mobility solutions. Not even sure what that meant, really. Uh, the term mobility wasn't even used. Um, and, uh, and it was because I knew uh, that fundamentally uh, our business was going to have to change for two reasons. One, because every other industry was getting disrupted and technology was developing so quickly that a lot of that was, had to be applicable to us. But also, secondly, what I said a minute ago, there were big problems that had to be solved around the transportation field. Um, there was pollution. Well, obviously, now we're attacking that with electric vehicles, and but there's a lot that has to still be developed there.
0: Although the Trump administration has rolled back a lot of those emission standards.
1: Well, so. they haven't yet. Uh, they're talking the, about the it. The plan and, is. Yeah. And, and we, we've said we don't want to roll back. We want to, because uh, we're, we're committed to... Uh, completely now to electrification, not just in the United States, but in China, Europe, elsewhere. But, you know, so you've got the, the, the emissions issue, but importantly, too, you have the congestion issue. Um, and so those are two big problems that had to be solved, and they weren't going to be solved by our conventional approaches.
0: You talked in your TED Talk in, in 2011, uh, and I would point people to it because it's fascinating, and then to think you gave this talk seven years ago, sitting where we are today, you then admitted, I don't have the solution. I don't know what it is, but we can't keep selling cars and trucks the way we are. Right. And I mean, the gridlock, you explained, what was it, like a six-day traffic jam in China or something yeah. insane? Yeah, it was 11-day traffic Eleven jam. 11 days. Yeah. I actually sat in one in Shanghai that was insane and it got out insane. and walked. But um, do you know, sitting here today in 2018, what the solution is? We know,
1: I know a lot more than I did then. I mean, so autonomy is coming. Um, it will play a big role in cities. We are we Ford are building uh, what we're calling the transportation cloud, um, and it's um, it's it's to be developed so that um, cars can talk to the infrastructure around it um, to uh, enhance traffic flow and people moving, goods moving. What's I think unknown still are all the ancillary businesses that will develop around this yeah,
0: and be um, and be affected by it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but if you think of it, it really every piece of our business is changing. Uh, The ownership model is changing, as we've been discussing. The combustion model, the the way uh, vehicles propelled is changing. The way vehicles are going to be financed will uh, change. On whose balance sheet they sit will change. Um, And so... 3D printing is coming, and that will change manufacturing. you Are going to print my car? We could, absolutely. We'll print your car someday. I can't tell you exactly when, but yeah, but before we print your car, we'll certainly start to print, print um, <clears throat> components of your car. Um, and that has profound implications for um, the size of plants you build, the kind of inventory you keep, mm-hmm. even at dealerships, the, the kind of inventory they'll have to keep. So as I say, everything is changing.
0: Much more of my conversation with Bill Ford after the break. Let's dig into autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Um, New poll out from AAA. 73% Americans right now are too afraid. Yeah. Too afraid to ride in a self-driving vehicle. That's up from last year. It was 63%. So it's gotten worse. Well, there have been a couple of events. So you've had this uh, Uber autonomous vehicle accident that killed someone in Arizona. Um, How do you win the public perception war here?
1: Well, I think, you know, unfortunately, there's been so much hype around AVs, and that's why we've been relatively quiet, Ford has, because we know this is hard, and we know it's not perfect, and we know we can't launch it until it's really ready for prime time. And so, uh, you know, I think there's been some irresponsibility in our industry around promising things that aren't quite ready to be delivered.
0: Is the irresponsibility in making the promise this will be on the road in mass by 2021 or whatever, or is the irresponsibility in the test drives that are going on right now, and like this death, for example? Well, I
1: think I think part of it, you know, some manufacturers are calling things self-driving, and they're simply not. They're not. Others, um, you do need to test, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I think we all need to test, and we. but we need to do it, you know, you start, you go in increments. You start in what we call geofenced areas where they're well mapped and the weather's good and right. blah, 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 lower speeds.
0: And this Arizona crash was a pedestrian.
1: Right, right. And I don't know the specifics of that. I mean, I certainly know yeah, of yeah. the event. but. Um, you know, and and there was a driver in the vehicle, uh, and so you know, I think there was just a lot of bad things that happened at once, and I really don't know the specifics, but but what I do know is that we spent a lot of time internally talking about. Um, you know what is the right thing to say about it? Because it's, it's, you don't want to give the impression you're not in the game. Sure. On the other hand, you certainly don't want to overpromise. And so That's interesting. what we're trying to do is really develop the technology, do it quietly, and then when we're ready to roll it out, To do it in a way that's thoughtful, because the whole point of this is to make people's lives better. And
0: safer. I mean, let's remember in 2016, the latest data, we have 37,000 Americans. People died on the roads in the U.S. The idea is if you take out the human error element, if you take out drunk driving, if you take out texting while driving, you can save countless lives if you get it right.
1: Yeah, and you can, you know, seniors now can have mobility. I mean, That's true. I
0: remember when my grandmother could no longer drive, and so the independence that that took away. No
1: question. And, you know, Harvard and and Brookings have both done studies saying the number one um, indicator of getting out of poverty is being able to get to where the work is.
0: Such a good point.
1: So there are a lot of great benefits that will come from this, and we're focused on those benefits, but you make a very valid point people have to be comfortable with it. But like any new technology, I think people are always afraid of new technology and then they get over it. Um, Sure,
0: look at the beginning. Richard Branson always points me to the beginning of commercial aviation. Exactly. Can we talk about a computer making an ethical decision? Sure. How does a computer decide, I am headed towards a bad situation. If I turn left, I'm gonna kill uh, a mother and her baby in a stroller. If I turn right, I'm going to kill a middle-aged man and his dog. And I have no other choice. Right. How does a computer make that decision? It's
1: interesting you raise that because I've been raising that point a lot in the last three or four years, saying we have to ha- and and sort of until very recently in, to deaf ears. And I actually have asked uh, our leading universities to play a role in this because no one manufacturer can, can make that, out. that. Oh, can you imagine no. if we had one set of algorithms and an, and
0: by the way, maybe that shouldn't be a competitive advantage. No, it can't that, be. That, a just no, be no, a that has just be an industry safety. standard.
1: Right. Absolutely. But then the question is where and who. Um, it doesn't fit naturally into an existing, um, you know, government agency or. So these are all discussions that have to happen. Um, I think, though, what will end up happening is the primary uh, role of the vehicle is to protect the occupants, because if that isn't, who's going to get in them? Um, so if, if you thought your vehicle was going to benefit society by killing you, mm. um, that's May benefit society, but you're not going to get in that.
0: Yeah, you have to win on both fronts.
1: Yeah, so I think I think all of this is is going to have to be worked
0: through. Um, what about moral decisions in terms of jobs? Right. Like Goldman Sachs came out with a report last year looking at just uh, autonomy and autonomous ve- vehicles in full and said U.S. drivers could lose about 300,000 jobs a year when autonomous vehicles sort of reach peak saturation. That's so many truck drivers, so many taxi drivers, right. so many Uber drivers. Well, f- um, first of
1: all, it, it's going to happen over a long period. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I I agree with that study, basically, that there will be uh, traditional jobs lost, but there'll be other jobs gained. So if you think about these AVs and they're running around cities, they're going to have to go and get serviced somewhere. They're going to have to recharge somewhere. They're going to have to get reprogrammed uh, over the air. So they're they're going to be uh, jobs created.
0: And it's going to just if I just for a moment. You got a truck driver who's fifty years old. I, I agree. I, and you so got to retrain them. Then society does society have a role in retraining I, them? I, I
1: believe so, and I've actually been uh, calling for that because uh, you know, with all this new technology, with artificial intelligence really per- starting to permeate, and really in the next ten years will completely permeate almost everything we do. Yeah. Th- you know, it's not just the transportation industry; it's almost every industry is going to have profound job implications of this. Yeah. Um And we as a society need to start that discussion now.
0: Who will own the data? As cars (laughs) are already more connected and will become more so, especially with autonomy, you will get such interesting, important, valuable data um, and data worth a lot of money about where I am and what I'm doing and who I'm with and all of this. Who should own that data, the automaker or the driver?
1: Well, ultimately, the the customer will own their data, but we would like to have access to pieces of it, of course, as would the software uh, providers. I mean, everybody wants a piece of the data. You're you're right. I mean, that ultimately will be, um, if not a fight, at least a negotiation over um, where that data goes and who has access to it. And then, you know, and then there are, you know, you lay on top of that privacy issues. Well, you know? also law enforcement issues. issues. Exactly. Like
0: if there's a suspected crime, I mean, the Supreme Court's hashing this out in one case right now. Can you turn and that has to do with cell phone, exactly. phone data? but Can you hand over that location data to the to the authorities?
1: Exactly. So, you know, th- this sort of falls under the whole ethical discussion. Yeah. You, you know, we were having a minute ago. These are broad implications that are, are going to happen and it's going to be impossible for a single company to solve them. There has to be a larger conversation with society on all of
0: this. Do you think that my two-year-old daughter and my four-month-old son will ever drive a car?
1: I do, but I think I think the, they will drive a car selectively. So, um, you know, if they are taking a road trip somewhere, um, they may they probably want to drive it. If they live, you know, two hours outside of a city they'll probably own a vehicle or at least have access to a vehicle and want to drive it. But if they're in New York and just want to get from downtown to uptown, No, they they probably won't.
0: And there will be roads, do you believe, and highways where drivers are not allowed, where only autonomous vehicles are allowed?
1: Probably. I mean, there will certainly be lanes like that to start with. And ultimately, there may be entire cities that only allow uh, AVs. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's not impossible to think about. You could park outside a city. Um, and then access the city through the city's own transportation network.
0: Well, think about like the congestion pricing in London and what was done there. Exactly. Um, Ford has made a big investment in artificial intelligence through a company called Argo, a billion-dollar investment, Mm -hmm. I believe. What will AI mean for Ford, for the industry? What's the goal there? Well, so
1: AI is going to really impact everything, but... For Argo specifically, that's to develop the brains, if you will, of the autonomous vehicles. So we you know, are really good at building the hardware. and also we're good at in- integrating electrical software into a vehicle. But Argo is really the, the brain development, if you will. Um, and there are a bunch of, uh, well, the two lead guys you know, you know, have spent a lot of years in this industry and they've put together kind of an all-star team in Pittsburgh. A lot of whom were originally attached to Carnegie Mellon um, to do just this, and so. But then, if you look at AI more broadly, um, you know it'll have impact on the way we make our vehicles, um, the way we interact with customers. Really, I mean, that's not Argo's remit. Argo's remit is to develop the brains of our autonomy. Um, Right. So, but AI itself will permeate everything we do.
0: Wired magazine headline a few uh, a few years ago: Headline: Bill Ford isn't scared of Apple.
1: True. Well, they love headlines. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you I'm, said it. I'm scared it. of everybody. Uh, because every, you know, really? I, well, no, I, I think health, healthily so. I mean, you've got to keep an uh, Getting back to what I said a moment ago about being curious. I love to learn about what other companies are doing. I love to see what's applicable for us. And I love to see, you know, gauge us always. Are we competitive? Are we behind? If we're behind, what can we do about it? And so, um, you know, I've got huge respect for Apple, but, you know, I think the context a few years ago when that was written was the the sort of the narrative that was out there in society was tech companies win, autos, auto companies lose.
0: It was that yeah. will be the
1: end of the story. Mm-hmm. And all I was saying is no. We actually bring strengths to this uh, equation that people are underestimating.
0: But you've also said in that article, we don't want to be the handset to be just the assembler of other people's interesting technology. So that was also you saying, we're not just going to build your car and then you can outfit it. We are going to build and create this technology. That's how you think you win.
1: Well, that's right. And that's why we made the investment in Argo. Right. Um, that's why we're starting to develop all these um, businesses, or at least <laughs> in theory now, around the autonomous world. Because, no, we don't want to cede any ground to anybody. Having said that, will we partner? Yeah, for sure.
0: What about hacking my car?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's another issue. Cybersecurity is is a big deal. Um, you know, there are some really interesting startups that are working on this now. Um and you know there was a I guess about a year and a half ago some very high profile hacking that was done. thankfully that weren't our vehicles, but probably could have been. I mean we could have been targeted, we weren't right. But I think the point, it was a wake-up call, not that we needed it because we were already aware, that we really need to make cybersecurity a, um, uh, an integral part of all this. Because if
0: you think you're sitting in an autonomous vehicle, someone wants something bad to happen to you, they hack it, they can drive it wherever, exactly. right? You've got to get through that. Uh, I want to talk about Detroit Yes. and what Detroit means to you. Detroit means a lot to me, and I wasn't even born there. Um, I've spent a lot of time covering Detroit over the there last decade. The, you know, Unfortunately, a lot of it has been the downfall. Mm-hmm. Lately, it's been nice to see the rise again and in the investment made. But what does Detroit mean to you?
1: Well, I've been there my whole life. Uh, my family um, is so intertwined with Detroit that it's almost impossible to separate them. I mean, if you... The Ford Freeway goes right through Detroit. The Henry Ford Hospital is there. Ford Field. Ford Field, Detroit Institute of Arts, which was, you know, my uh, grandparents and great-grandparents were enormously influential in its founding. I mean, you could go on and on down the list. You know, and I'm old enough to remember the riots. Uh, So I was there when that happened. And, And almost overnight, everything that I did in my life shifted from the city to the suburbs. My doctor, my dentist, where I bought my clothes. 50 years ago. Yeah, everything uh, just shifted. And Detroit was on a long-term uh, decay. And it was terrible. And then it was even worse when you traveled around the country and people said, where are you from? And if I'd say Detroit, you'd either get you know, one of two reactions like, wow, you must be the toughest SOB who's ever walked the earth, or, gee, I'm really sorry to hear that.
0: All anyone says about where I'm from, Minnesota, is that it's cold. It's cold, yeah. Well, we've
1: got that, too. Maybe not twice as cold as
0: you. But But, but uh, right, and yet you're so proud of where you're from. Well,
1: yeah, and I remember, you know, um, almost 20 years ago when I was uh, negotiating to build uh, Ford Field downtown, I I was uh, called up by one of the most prominent business people in Detroit. And said, will you come see me? And I, so I did. And he said to me, if you build this stadium in downtown Detroit, it'll be the biggest mistake you'll ever make. Your fans won't follow you. They'll be afraid. They won't want to park their cars. There's nothing for them to do pre and post game. Um, and, um, and all the money is in the suburbs. So, and you won't get police support. And this is coming from somebody who didn't make many mistakes in life. So I thought, wow. Well... Hope he's wrong. Um, and for the first couple years it was a little like that. Yeah. Now, of course, it's the it's part of the cornerstone of the rebuilding of Detroit. Well, and, and you have
0: the Illich family, what of they've done downtown and, and Dan we're right Gilbert. Next there.
1: Exactly. So it, it's really been great.
0: Uh, Ford is announcing that it is going to do more to that effect. Yes. And this has to do with the Michigan Central Station. This is a long-abandoned, iconic train station in the heart of Detroit, that for many, unfortunately, since it was sort of abandoned in the 70s, right, yeah. has become this icon of ruin. Yeah, absolutely. And you're not OK with that.
1: I hated that. Uh, I remember the train station when it was vibrant and it was an awesome place. And so, um, yeah, it's it's every time, uh, you know, a national publication would do an article on the decay of Detroit. They'd show it. The photo was always of the train station. And every time I'd see that, it was like a knife through my heart. So um, to be able to now come back to Detroit uh, and to completely renovate the train station and make it awesome again, to me, I I can't think of anything I'd rather do. So what's it going to be? Well, what it's going to be is um, it's going to be awesome. Um, It's going to have on the first floor, which is a beautiful, beautiful floor. Um, I mean, it's even now in its... Decayed state. Walking around, the grandeur is unmistakable, and so we're going to restore all of that. Make that all open to the public. Have um, restaurants and 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 retail and and bars and coffee shops and you know, kind of like the ferry station in San Francisco, um, the ferry terminal in San Francisco, which I was at, you know, about three or four months ago, and. You know, it's hustling, bustling. People who aren't going to the ferry are still going there to eat, to hang out. That's what the ground floor will be. Then we'll have offices above. And for us, it's really important because we're we're building a downtown campus around the very themes that you and I have been talking about, autonomous vehicles and electrification.
0: When you look at the future of Detroit, for example, no matter how difficult of a time the country's going through. Warren Buffett is sort of this ever optimistic voice. Right. And I wonder if you're the same way on Detroit. Are you are you bullish on Detroit? That's sort of the brain drain that is that has happened. You know, many young people who have left because they don't see the opportunity there that they see in San Francisco or New York. Is that turning? Are you bullish? on the I, days I'm actually ahead?
1: really bullish. And it took me a while to get there. I was always hopeful. But there's a difference between hopeful sure, and bullish. a big one. Yeah, I'm bullish now. Um, why? Because it's real. And actually, when we go recruit young people now, mm-hmm. even five, six years ago, we'd have to sell them everything but Detroit about coming to work at Ford. Uh, now, Detroit is the magnet. People, there's a buzz about Detroit nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true in the art scene. It's true in the restaurant scene. You know, you always hear Detroit's the new Brooklyn, um, and you Brooklyn's know I hear that Brooklyn's a pretty cool place. I hear it's I a very there. cool place. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but that's but you know that's what I'm hearing in Detroit is that Detroit's the new Brooklyn. And you,
0: it's more affordable, I'll tell you well, that. It's,
1: it is more affordable, and um, although interestingly, um, housing is, is really it? hard. To I should find. have bought a house there really during hard to, you know <laughs> seven amazing. years ago.
0: But let me ask you this, um, because I wonder from an outside perspective, it seems to me like a lot of that money that's flowing into these tech jobs, etc. Is flowing to young, often white millennials Mm -hmm. um, and that the more the poorest neighborhoods of Detroit, the predominantly black neighborhoods are not getting the help needed. Would you. Is that a fair read?
1: I I think it it is fair. um, And I think everybody in the business community is acutely aware of not leaving the neighborhoods behind But I think rebuilding the tax base of the city is going to give the mayor, um, who's doing a great job. We uh, spent
0: a good amount of time interviewing him last year. Yeah, Yeah.
1: he's he's terrific. He's an old friend. In fact, when when I built Ford Field uh, years ago, Mike was my primary contact. He was working for the county then. He's not
0: the one who told you not to build it. (laughs) No, no. In
1: fact, he and I worked very, very closely together and became great friends and been friends ever since and um, And he obviously was enormously helpful uh, on our whole Corktown, uh, not just the train station, but everything else we're doing in Corktown. but um, and he's acutely aware of of the need to bring the neighborhoods up, bring the schools up. And so uh, there are a lot of us, myself included, that are very involved in the schools in Detroit, um, and also the neighborhoods. but you know, to, to do any of that takes money. And so, you know, with companies moving downtown like they are, startups happening all over, which is really cool to see, um, the tax base is starting to get rebuilt.
0: So b- before we move on to some policies now, um, two really critical points in relatively recent history for Ford. One is when you decided I'm not the right guy to be CEO for the company right now. Mm-hmm. First of all, a lot of CEOs don't make that decision themselves. Right. You did. You stepped down from being CEO and you pointed to Alan Mulally. Right. Who was then at Boeing. Yep. And said, this is the guy who's going to save this company. Mm -hmm. What told you that, that that you weren't the right one? So I, at the time I was chairman,
1: I was CEO, I was president, and I was COO. uh, And it was too much. So I went to my board and I said, I need help. And I said, particularly because I see a wave of restructuring ahead of us. And, um, and I said, I need somebody to help with that. And the board said to me, are you look- what are you looking for? Are you looking for a COO? I said, I don't care. I'm looking for the right person. The titles aren't important to me. I'll be at this company till I can't be anymore. Um, but I, you know, And I said, I really, I've never done a major restructuring. I need somebody who's been through it. So I found Alan, who, you know, was at ran Boeing right after 9-11 when the aircraft business just dried up, and he had to take dramatic action. Um, and, it, and one of the things that was so important was I talked to the head of the union out there, who, you know, their union membership suffered, and yet he had nothing but the highest praise for Alan. And that taught me, yeah. wow, um, if he could do that, what he did, and still have the union on his side, that's remarkable. So... Um, so i I did hire Alan. Uh, I made up a term which now a lot of people seem to use, executive chairman. Uh, I, I wanted that to connote that I wasn't going anywhere, mm-hmm. um, and Alan was terrific.
0: did Alan Malally save Ford?
1: I think well, I think he certainly helped. I mean, there were a lot of people that the whole Ford team was amazing, and you know but Alan was a great CEO.
0: He um, implemented this sort of. What I found fascinating, rule in meetings. Um, I guess people were being sort of too Pollyannish about how things were going. Right. It's like green light, yellow light, red light. Right. And he insisted, give it to me straight. Exactly. If this isn't ready, tell me the truth. Right.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, and again, think back, to, we were talking at the very beginning about insular culture. Mm-hmm. Part of that is also not wanting to deliver bad news because, you know. Sure. So, um, yeah, Alan was great in terms of the discipline that was So We're at a very different time now. In some ways, it's a much more difficult time. Right. Well, it depends how you define difficult. We were staring at the abyss. That's pretty difficult. Yeah. But what we had to do was pretty clear. Yes. Now we have a number of strategic choices ahead of us, um, which is both you know invigorating, but also but you know hard. sobering. Yeah.
0: Um, and the second big moment in recent history, the decision to literally mortgage the Ford name, the blue oval. Mm-hmm. To save the company, to not have to take a government bailout. Right. Can you take me into that most heated moment in your office, in his office, whoever decided made the final call on that? What was that moment like?
1: Well, it it was interesting. So um, uh, there were a couple things. So Alan came when I interviewed him. He said restructuring is expensive. And will I have the capital needed to do that? So um, that precipitated me having some discussions with bankers. It was interesting. A number of the bankers said, "Well, you know, just take what you need at the time. Don't take the big, uh, the you know, the the big chunk." Interestingly, one banker um, said to me, "Who I respected greatly. Listen, right now the uh, the markets are very benign. Um, Ford's doing well, Uh, and because remember when I hired Alan, we were still profitable, Uh, and so." In in 05, you know, that's when I went to my board and I said, I think I'm going to step down. They said, what? We just, things are going well. But anyway, I knew we needed the liquidity. This one banker said to me, look, we don't know what the credit markets are going to be like a year from now. If Ford stumbles um, and if the industry stumbles, you may not have access to this capital when you need it. So take it now. So take it all. So we did the largest borrowing, I mean, that we could possibly get. And yes, I had to mortgage everything, including our family name, the, the Blue Oval. Um, and that <laughs> caused a little consternation among some of my family members. You and, a little and, heartburn? And a little, well, I mean, understandably, yeah. When I had to call a family meeting and say, guess what? I just mo- hocked everything. Um, but in the end, it was absolutely the right thing to do because the credit markets did freeze shut. Um, our competitors ended up going bankrupt, because they did not have access to capital. Um, And then Alan uh, worked his magic. And the combination of having the capital and having the discipline that he instilled got us through.
0: The Trump White House has slapped 25% tariff on $50 billion of Chinese goods. Is that good or bad for America? Well, I I think.
1: You know, any time you get into a trade war, it's not a good thing. Um,
0: is it, does this get us closer to a trade war?
1: Well, it gets us closer. It doesn't necessarily put us in it. But, you know, I, it, it's, we're a global company. We do business all around the world. Um, we source all around the world. And so, um, in, and, you know, and this is our biggest market. And we invest much more here than we do anywhere else in the world. And we're, um, the, we have employ more American workers than any other auto worker uh, maker, even though we're not the largest, so we're you know we are more invested in this market than anybody else. Uh, having said that, um, still believe on balance that free trade is the right thing because we've all seen before in other parts of the world where you start this and then there's a retaliatory uh, movement.
0: China has vowed to retaliate.
1: Well, and then it starts to escalate, and that's really not good for anybody.
0: You talk to the president a lot on the phone, or at least you used to. Not so much anymore. All right, he, he used to call you for advice a lot. Did he call you for advice on this?
1: Uh, we, not me personally, but our our people have been talking to his administration about about NAFTA, about the EU, about China, um, and really the thought that uh, uh, that you know the trade ought to be on balance free trade.
0: Are you thinking of picking up the phone and calling him about? No, I don't think
1: so, because, uh, first of all, it's retrospective. Uh, I mean, it's already happened. Uh, and secondly, he's getting a lot of advice. Um, and so, um, but, you know, I, we our line of communication with the administration is pretty good. And we've been meeting with uh, uh, Trade Representative Lighthizer. We've been meeting with... Uh, uh, Elaine Chao and, and, and others in the, uh, in the administration. Jim Hackett was at the White House, who's our CEO, CEO, two weeks ago.
0: Can you help me understand, well, in addition to this news on China, we've learned that the U.S. will slap tariffs on imported steel and aluminum from our allies, from Europe, from, from the EU, from Canada, from Mexico, Is that good for American jobs? Well,
1: it depends what you... I mean, overall, I I, I don't think so. And and the reason I say that is um, I believe this number is right, or if it's not, it's directionally right. There are 80 times more jobs around people who use steel than people who produce steel. And so uh, if that's directionally correct, and I believe it is then um, you're putting those jobs potentially at jeopardy as the price of, of steel starts to go up. Um, and the price of steel inevitably will grow, go up with this. So I, um, we're not in favor of that, no. Okay.
0: So Ford, I went to Michigan uh, to interview the then CEO when Ford announced that it would scrap plans for Uh, plant that it was already building in Mexico and make those cars in in the U.S. instead. This is after the president publicly criticized Ford on Twitter. I know at that time he was calling you relatively often. Um, Was that move because of the Trump attack?
1: No, uh, it wasn't. But, you know, we also uh, are always looking at our global footprint, trying to say, okay, what makes the most sense? And You know, a lot of it has to do with currency shifts, too. Um, And so, I mean, and that's the world we live in. But we'll make a decision because of the long lead times. What seemed like a great decision at the time, all of a sudden starts to shift. Because Uh, the
0: administration took credit.
1: And that's fine. Um, You know, but ultimately we make our own decisions.
0: Um, Ford was the first of all of the big automakers to come out and publicly oppose the administration's travel ban last year. And I want to read the statement. Respect for all people is a core value of Ford Motor Company. We're proud of the rich diversity of our company here and at home and around the world. That's why we don't support this policy or any other that goes against our values as a company. Um, can you talk about that decision to come out? Yeah, um, so I felt- especially given what seemed like a pretty good relationship you had with the incoming president.
1: That may have it a little. Um but I felt it was important to get that out um because um you know we have so many employees that were and their families that were potentially affected
0: well, by that. I remember Dearborn, Michigan where you're headquartered Absolutely. is I think the largest Arab population in this country. That's right.
1: And so and we employ so so many of of that community and um And, you know, and they all have extended families and everybody was worried. Are we going to be cut off from our family? Can we can our relatives get home? Can I get home? Um, And we just felt that wasn't right.
0: So what's the administration relationship? What's your relationship like now with the Trump administration? Meaning if you could pick up the phone, which you could and say, here's one thing that you can do that I think will be beneficial to my company and beneficial to American jobs. I'm interested in what that would be.
1: Well, there are a number of things. I mean, obviously, you know, trade currency. I mean, these are just today's issues. uh, And those are both big issues. And I think looking a little longer term, it's some of the issues that we were talking about. Um, It's we have to have a national conversation around employment uh, and the implications of technology on employment. We have to have a national conversation around ethics on uh, autonomous vehicles. You know, all these kinds of things that, um, you know, probably aren't high on any administration's list, and the reason is that they, you know, and it's human nature, and it's even true in companies, people look beyond their own horizon and they say, well, that'll be somebody else's issue. Mm-hmm. But I believe that we need to start talking about it now and, and start to put in enabling legislation that um, really will make it uh, not a company by company, but industry-wide, because that's the only way we can get things done, I believe.
0: Tax reform. The tax reform mm-hmm. we saw pass. Uh, what has that meant for Ford as a company and in terms of jobs and wages? Has it meant higher wages, more jobs? Has it had not uh, not that effect? What has it been? Because there's even been some Republicans like Marco Rubio who have said, look, this hasn't actually, you know, improved wages. Well,
1: I, I think it's clearly had an effect on the economy, and that's good. And so um, our purchasing uh, public has been very active, and, you know, the car sales have been strong. And mm-hmm. That's been great. I think as a company, it's probably had less of an impact. Um, you know, we, we Than you expected? Well, no. But we, we were not really, you know, we didn't have much. a lot of cash trapped overseas. We didn't, ha- you know, mm-hmm. w- it's always helpful. I think lowering the corporate rate was really a good thing to do. Um, we were uncompetitive as a country. We were. So, uh, and that was something I think that had pretty bipartisan support on, was getting the corporate tax rate down. Um, I thought that was really good. And uh, but in terms of, you know, our hiring and uh, we were hiring anyway and we continue to hire. But, you know, I can't say it was really driven by the tax policy, although it is, as I say, to the extent that it lifted the overall economy, then, of course, we benefit from that.
0: So what about you? You (laughs) ever run
1: I love what I do. Um, That
0: is such a political answer.
1: No, but I do love it. Well, I guess it is. But for most people, it probably is political. But this, look, uh, you know, when I look at the effect I can have on the world, um, I think about what would I run for? Um, You know, what office would I run for? Governor? Well, that's the state of Michigan. I affect people's lives around the world right now, um, and I try and make them better every day. So it gets me out of bed every day, and. You know, when I run for senator, well, you don't have that much autonomy as a senator. I mean, it's a hugely important job, don't get me wrong. Your
0: approval ratings would be pretty low right now (laughs) if you were in Congress. Well, I guess.
1: But, you know, so no, I I, I think, you know, people ask me that from time to time. Why don't you go run?
0: Well, you have this famous last name and you have this career. Right. Right, all of these years.
1: You know, if I really thought that I could help... You know, sort of going back almost to the very beginning when we were talking about, you know, why didn't I leave to become an environmentalist? Because I thought I could affect change from within. Were you right? I was right. Um, And when I think now about should I go run for an elected office versus staying and trying to make people's lives better around the world by giving them access to jobs, by... uh, Letting medical care and food move freely around cities, uh, you know, uh, providing employment to uh, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And, and making their families' lives better, to me, that that is hugely important. And I can't think of anything I'd rather do.
0: You didn't say president. You said governor and Senate. Did you ever think about running for president? No,
1: because, again, it's, it's you know, it's that's, it's, again, it's very important, but it's short-lived. Um, and, uh, you know, this has been a long arc for me. I've been doing this for my whole life, and I'd like to think I have a long runway ahead of me. And there's a lot I still want to accomplish, uh, and a lot— all driven by, can I actually make people's lives better? And so, no, I, I'm not even for a minute mesmerized by it. Um, I mean, I, as I say, I, it may be a political answer, but I do love what I do. And I can't imagine doing anything else.
0: And so many CEOs that sit in this seat tell me, looking at the state of Washington today, I can affect so much more change from the corner office.
1: Yeah. And, but that can change, too. Washington can change. And, and you know, and, and, you know, we've all seen different eras in Washington. So I don't get too hung up on what I'm seeing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, I just think in this country in general, there's just a lot of anger. Um, and there's a loss of civility uh, that I think is disturbing, too. And so, um, you know, I'd love to see that change. But I don't know that that would change,
0: you know, your opinion. Yeah. No. Bill Ford, thank you for being here. Thank you, Poppy. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN.
1: Now, streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyoncé and Nashville's
0: Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.